following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus Christ is worthy. That's why we gather. We gather to praise the name of Jesus. We gather uh, to pray, to sing our hearts out, and to open up the word of God, the perfect word of God. I invite you to open up the scriptures and Go to Romans chapter 15, and if you're able, please stand with me as I'm about to read Romans 15 verses 7 through 13, which is all about rejoicing in the glory of Christ, rejoicing in gospel glory. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, authoritative word of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Lord, we praise you. Praise you, Lord God. You are the God of hope. Our prayer today, Lord, is that you would fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would abound in hope. All for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How does gospel welcome lead to gospel glory? How does accepting each other in Christ because Christ accepted us show a watching world that Christ exists? How does the invisible God make himself visible as a local church breaks barriers and lives together under God's grace? How is the presence of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ present tense proof? That the gospel is true. Why is it so important? Why is it so necessary? So absolutely necessary. From Romans chapter 12 verse 1 onward, we have been exhorted very strongly to live in line with gospel truth. To live consistent 
with the gospel. Over and over again, we are being exhorted to do so, to live with a, a transformed mind renewed by God, to, to have community without competition, to love one another, to be steadfast in a hostile world. From chapter 14, verse 1 onward, we have been exhorted strongly that every believer is to show love to others in a local church. Not judging, not causing to stumble, thoughtful in matters of conscience. Last week we saw in chapter 15 verses 1 to 6 that we have a Christ-centered basis for unity. That is our reason for unity. That is why we are unified in Christ and we must imitate Jesus Christ. He did not serve himself but others. That Our unity in Christ means not pleasing ourselves but Jesus because Jesus did not please himself. But our harmony then puts Christ's finished work on the cross on display. It makes the invisible God visible to a watching world. And then today, just a beautiful passage of scripture about gospel glory. We see our harmonious unity in Christ proves something significant. It proves that God is doing what he promised and he is reuniting this broken world under one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's happening in this passage is that Paul is beginning a summary conclusion, not just of chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, verse 6, but of the entire letter of Romans so far. Here we are in Romans 15, 7 to 13. And everything that is said hinges on Christ's welcome of believers. It's crucial for us to understand what is his welcome of believers. As we're going through this passage, we're going to see uh, some amazing things, and it all stems from verse 7. It's a transitional exhortation for all believers to welcome one another as Christ welcomed them. Do it unconditionally. Whomever Christ has chosen and accepted and put you together with in a local church, you are to choose to accept. To choose to bring into friendship and fellowship those who are vastly different from you and receive them lovingly. And then what comes next in this passage is the explanation of why it's so necessary. Verses 8 and 9. Why is it so necessary? It's about Christ serving the Jews in verse 8 and then confirming God's truthfulness to his word and then in verse 9, bringing Gentiles into the family of God by mercy. And then in verses 10 through 12, there's the scriptural footing for the unified worship of Jews and Gentiles and really all nations, whoever is saved by Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, a, a beautiful concluding prayer. A heartfelt prayer, one of five prayers in the closing two chapters of Romans. This is the second of five. And it's a prayer that God would give Jews and Gentiles abundant hope as believers in Jesus. Whoever's a believer in Jesus, they would have abundant hope for the fulfillment of God's plan to do what he said he would do. And what we'll see is this is how Gospel welcome leads to gospel glory. What we see in this passage, how gospel welcome leads to gospel glory through four things really. The welcome of Christ, which drives it all, and then the work of Christ, and the worship of Christ, and the witnesses of Christ. We're going to see Christ's welcome and his work. We'll see people worshiping Christ and then the witnesses of Christ out in the world. Look with me at verse 7. This passage begins, it, you know, it, it bats lead off in this one verse that it just drives everything else, and it's about Christ's welcome of believers. And it's one of sovereign initiation. It, it drives our unity. Verse 7 begins, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You don't get higher than that. Welcome as you have been welcomed by Christ. 
Everyone should warmly welcome one another in the church despite the differences and follow the pattern laid down by Christ's work of reconciling sinners to himself. So stop waiting for anyone to deserve it. They never will. It's all by grace. You notice a double use of welcome here. Comparing the welcome that believers are to give one another with the welcome that Christ gave them, it recalls Romans 5.8. And by the way, Paul in this passage is just spraying to all fields, recalling all sorts of things he's already said in this letter. Here it recalls Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, we didn't deserve it, nor could we ever deserve it. But we were welcomed by Christ, and now we are to welcome one another. Welcome one another is a strong word. The Greek word is proslambano, and you need to know it because there's another word somewhat related to it that falls underneath it. Proslambano means to accept beforehand. Christ accepted believers before they accepted him. Welcome one another, proslambano. You welcome your fellow believers before they accept you. Welcome one another, post-Lombano, accept beforehand, receive, take in addition to. Here is Christ who has accepted us, who has welcomed us. He has brought us into the family, his growing family, and he, he has brought us in in a God-centered way, in a choosing beforehand way, in a initiate to accept way. He initiated the process to accept us into his family, into adopt, adopt us into his family. Now, if you go to John 1.12, you may be familiar with this verse. To as many as received him, Lombano, to as many as received him, accepted him, he gave right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The idea here is that Jesus proslambanoed us. He welcomed us, he accepted us beforehand, he received us first, we love him because he first loved us, and that's the pattern for love in the church. It doesn't matter if you think someone doesn't like you, it doesn't matter if, if, even if they've been unkind to you, you're to go after them with love and initiate love towards them so that you would be unified in Christ in the local church. He says you, as Christ has welcomed you. We in the selfish West, we think that just means me and Jesus. The you here is the second person plural. It's all believers. You, all of us gathered together, the free and the tenderhearted. All are to glorify God with one heart, one voice. You, the church, Jew and Gentile. All colors, all nations, all tribes, all languages. To truly rejoice in the salvation blessings that have been poured out on whomever is saved. You do it as Christ did it for the glory of God. Not for you, not for your reputation, but for His. Christ's initiating action results in believers glorifying God. And we glorify God when we welcome one another. Now throughout Romans... The relationship between Jews and Gentiles has been a major concern. If you think you have trouble getting along with people in the body of Christ today in this local church, just think what it was like for Jews and Gentiles to be adopted into the family of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and be called to worship together as heirs of his grace. They're both being called upon to accept one another for the glory of God, just as Christ welcomed them. This was needed because they were at odds with one another. There was no one harder for Jews to accept than Gentiles. There was no one harder than, for Gentiles to accept than Jews. You think about Romans one twenty one, where people are not thanking God and not glorifying God. The gospel reverses that by generating harmony and peace that's expressed in worship in the gathered church, in Christ's church, wherever it exists. It's called a mutual acceptance. 
where you don't let dissension rule, you don't judge one another. No, but instead you're filled with joy and peace. Romans 14, 17 said this. This is what characterizes the kingdom of God, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So the intention here is that we should accept one another for the glory of God like Christ accepted us for the glory of God. Let's think deeply about how Christ did this. How did Christ accept us, welcome us for the glory of God? He did it in spite of our hostility toward him. He did it in spite of our sin against him. And he did it to bring us to God. Christ accepted us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sin. Christ's sovereign initiation drove our, our salvation and it drives our unity. And we must initiate welcome. That means that we step across ethnic boundaries. I, I love seeing all the faces in our gathered worship and we don't all look the same, and we're not all from the same place, but we're worshiping Jesus Christ who is worthy of our praise, our unified praise. It's a testimony to God's desire to receive praise from all nations, all peoples. It is God's plan, unity. But you step back into the first century Rome, that unity tempted to be fractured. The reason why is because here you have Roman Gentile believers who were to accept Jewish believers into friendship and into fellowship. And they didn't like one another. Here are the Jews who were objects of stereotype and ridicule and fear in first century Rome. Seneca called the Jews an accursed race. They viewed any conversion to Judaism with suspicion. Petronius claimed that Jews worshipped pigs, called them fakers, called them beggars. And here you have Gentile Roman believers. They're getting saved, and most likely they felt some sort of social pressure not to accept the Jews in their church. And maybe there was a social cost to their fellowship. I don't know who is most difficult for you to accept. Who do you kind of, you know, think sideways about when you hear that someone is in the church or someone has gotten saved? What people group are you, are you worried about thinking they can't get saved? Who is most difficult for you to accept and to welcome into Christ's church? Christ accepts them. See, God initiates good, so we are to initiate good. We must reflect God's loving acceptance of all he chooses. We should not ever reflect worldly fear or prejudice. Ever. That Jews and Gentiles are to welcome one another unselfishly as Christ has welcomed them. This is how this passage starts, and the whole passage is driven by this idea. Accept one another for the glory of God because Christ accepted you for the glory of God. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's unsettling. Yes, it it rubs up against the grain of our human nature, and yes, it is commanded by God, and yes, it is a supernatural gift from God that he gives his church. Christ's welcome drives our unity. And it flows right into the next thing we see in verses eight and nine, Christ's work, what Christ did. It's a servant-hearted motivation where he keeps the promises and shows mercy. He keeps the promises and applies mercy. Look at verse 8. Paul begins, For I tell you, literally, I am maintaining this. There is a strong ring of authority to his words here. He's saying, I am asserting this. I am telling you this. It's not debatable. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. The Jewish Messiah became servant of the Jewish people to fulfill the promise. 
Galatians 4.4, 4, at, at the fullness of the time, when it came, God sent forth his son. It happened. And by the way, it says that Christ became a servant. It's in the perfect tense. It literally is, he has become a servant. It implies that Christ's service to Israel continues in the present, right now. Jews are still getting saved by Jesus. Remember in chapter 11, near the end of chapter 11, Paul said, unbelieving Israel remains God's chosen people. 11.28, their beloved due to the fathers. And it says here that Christ became a servant to them. You might think, if you're familiar with Bible words, that that might be doulos, the Greek word for slave. It's not. It's diakonos, the Greek word for deacon. Servant. In, in chapter 13, verse 4, that same word is used as an agent of God, the governing authorities. It emphasizes the representative nature of officials' authority. But here, it's emphasizing something else. The emphasis is on the idea that this person... This servant, Jesus, works in the interest of others. He became a servant working in the interest of the circumcision, of the Jews. And it was to show God's truthfulness. It was to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. God's purpose of confirming patriarchal promises and including Jews and Gentiles together in the church fulfills God's covenantal promises to Abraham and David. We have to grasp that. Unified praise to God fulfills God's purpose. His name is honored and praised by all peoples. God promised that to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. And it wasn't just peace between Jew and Gentile. Like, you know, you say to your kids, hey, make peace, apologize. You know, they say sorry or whatever, and they're kind of like looking at each other still, a little sideways, right? This is not just peace, and it isn't just peace for the sake of peace. This is peace that will lead to a goal of them praising God in unified worship. This is where they praise the glories of God's grace in Christ together. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. God keeps his promises in doing this. This recalls chapter 1, verse 16, where it says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This shows from that point on all the way to the end of chapter 8 where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jew and Gentile will not be separated if they are in Christ. Nothing can separate them from the love of God. God is impartial in judgment. God is impartial in redemption. All his chosen people across the spectrum of ethnic identity this recalls chapter 3 in Romans. That the unbelief of most Jews did not threaten God's faithfulness to his word. That God's promise to Abraham required him to justify Jew and Gentile by faith, not by keeping the law of the Jews. That Christ has become a minister of the Jews for the sake of God's covenant faithfulness. Abraham is heir of the word, world. Chapter 4, uh, Jew and Gentile are under his fatherhood. His leadership. This recalls chapter 9 and 10 and 11, how God's impartial choosing, how his, his choosing to give mercy does not involve him being unfaithful to his promises at all. Verse 8 is stressing the, the necessity of Israel's involvement in God's plan to, to bless the nations. That God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless the nations through them. Genesis 17 and 26 and 28. God keeps his promises. When Gentile believers glorify God with Jewish believers, this unified group testifies to God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel and to his merciful character which arises and, and is shown as he draws Gentiles by mercy and he made them no promises. See, the, uni the unified worship of God is, is one of the primary purposes for which Christ welcomed them both into his people. Should be a powerful incentive for us to welcome one another. Here is your incentive, what Jesus did 
Christ confirmed the promises to the fathers. He keeps his promises. And then he applies mercy. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ's purpose in coming to earth was not just to certify the promises, but to include the Gentiles in the circle of his mercy. And mercy has covenantal overtones here. It is God's loyal love. The Gentiles glorify God for covenantal mercy because they know they were the the recipients of undeserved saving kindness. Jew and Gentile believers are blessed. They must accept those who differ, just like Christ accepts us. In chapter 11 of Romans, Israel's rejection of the Messiah led to mercy for the Gentiles. God's mercy to the Gentiles would eventually result in salvation for many in Israel. We're still seeing that play out. The the plan for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles demonstrates God's word demonstrates his faithfulness to the promises to the patriarchs and it has not failed. It stands. He shows mercy. Why do we need mercy? Why is mercy so important for every believer? It's because our sin against God demands punishment in hell. And at the cross, Jesus suffered and took the punishment that our sins deserved, and he took it upon himself. He took all the punishment that unrepentant people deserve. This was God the Son, the Son of God. This is the infinite God taking upon himself all the wrath of God against sin to extend mercy to those he has chosen, to all who will believe. So if you're a believer today, be assured that you have been saved from the wrath of God and that you are delivered from all the anguish and all the torments of hell. Christ, the servant of Jews, shows God keeps his promise to Israel and that Gentiles might praise God for his mercy. And then he goes on and he says, as it is written... He's about to quote the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. You sing to God because you're you're overjoyed with what he has done. He says, I will confess you among the Gentiles and to your name sing praise. What Paul is going to do right now is he's going to confirm Christ's welcome to Jews and Gentiles for God's glory with a series of four quotes from the Old Testament. Four quotes from the three major parts of the Old Testament, from the writings, from the law, and from the prophets. And they envision Jew and Gentile praising God together. The last one is a prophecy on the significance of all nations praising God together. This first quote, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, is either from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50, or Psalm 18, verse 49. And the great thing is, they both relate. The psalm, Psalm 18, speaks of what happened and what was recorded in 2 Samuel 22. Now Paul often quotes the psalms in Romans, so most likely he's thinking of Psalm 18, verse 49. And he knew the historical setting of 2 Samuel 22, And he knew this, that the I in in that verse, in its original context, was David speaking to God. I will praise you among the Gentiles. Here's David telling God that he is going to praise him on the day that God delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and of Saul. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. Psalm 18 is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for delivering David from his enemies. And now his enemies will not be a threat. They'll be subdued under his power and obedient to him. And Paul is quoting the next to last verse of this psalm. The last verse, verse 50, says this. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. So Paul probably had this context in mind when he's quoting this psalm. Here is Christ, David's offspring. 
The obedience of faith that the Gentiles would render as the gospel is proclaimed from one people group to the next is right in line with the Davidic king that is ruling over the nations, ruling over the Gentiles. In fact, Romans started this way. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, the Gentiles, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Christ's welcome drives our unity, and Christ's work, it keeps the promises of God and applies the mercy of God. And it flows right into verses 10 through 12, which gives us a picture of worship of God, God's worship for his glorious salvation. It generates praise. Verse 10, he says, again it is said, quote, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is from the end of Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. There's a song that Moses sings in praise to God, and it's in Deuteronomy 32, 1 to 43. This is from verse 43, and it urges the nations to join in praising God for his saving works. His people here refers to Israel. Recalls Paul's insistence in chapter 11 that an Israelite remnant of believers proved that God did not cast off his people. He's quoting from the song of Moses that, that Christ welcomes all who will believe, Jew and Gentile. That is consistent with the vision of the psalm of Moses. That Gentiles would acknowledge God together with Israel. Verse 11, again, Another quote, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Let, let him praise God unfettered. Praise God with, with full voice. It's from Psalm 117, verse 1. All the peoples of the earth. A multi-ethnic assembly where, where all are equal before God when they worship. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. This must be us. Come together in Christ. Christ is urging all people, groups, to worship God. Then you get to verse 12, and Paul then puts the ultimate out there once again. He goes as high as you can go as the primary driver. He says, Jesus Christ is the reason for all of this. Remember, Christ welcomed every believer. So he says in verse 12, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That verse is packed full of gospel glory. Christ welcomed Jews and Gentiles into God's people through the gospel. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy through a descendant of David that God would restore the world to righteousness and peace. This final quote is, is from Isaiah 11, verse 10. It pictures Jesus, the descendant of David, standing over the nations whom he rules. The context, the context runs from Isaiah 10, verse 5, to Isaiah 12, verse 6, which prophesies God's judgment on Israel for ungodliness. It prophesies God's mercy on a remnant it prophesies God's restoration, not only of Israel, but the whole earth under the reign of David's descendant. And this is very crucial. Root of Jesse, here in Romans 15, is, is very, very important. It's a metaphor for the Messiah. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is figuratively standing for the Messiah here, the root of 
Jesse, root of a family, was the progenitor, the originator, the patriarch. Here is Jesse, son of Obed, grandson of Boaz and Ruth, a farmer, a sheep herder in Bethlehem. You go to the gospel genealogies and it tells us that Jesus was descended from the line of Jesse and his son David. Matthew 1, it, goes, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. You look in, in Luke 3, which goes backwards and leads to Adam. It says, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Here is Jesse, King David's father. Now when Isaiah is prophesying this, there was a present day hope that there would be an earthly king, Messiah, that would assume David's throne. Now through the prophet Samuel, God promises David his offspring would have an established throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. The messianic title, son of David, traces to this prophecy. It says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It wasn't just for one generation, but for all generations. So Isaiah uses root of Jesse so significant. It expresses the promise of a messianic king to be born of David's line, focusing Judah's expectation of survival on, on a sparse, leaderless remnant. Isaiah is using a similar idea, to shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11.1 1, to describe future hope. It's all about future hope. The Hebrew word for root, it, it can imply Something, it implies something that remains alive but doesn't seem alive sometimes. It sends up a shoot, just a, a, little, a little bit, the root of Jesse. And, and it's talking about one from whom more descendants will come. Many more descendants will come from him. Stump is this idea of a remnant of Jesse's family. Would, it would barely survive. It would look at times like it wasn't going to happen. I mean, think about it. God's judgment was coming upon his people. There would be a nation left with seemingly a lifeless stump, but there'd be life. There would be life in that stump. God promised to have a remnant, to retain a remnant, to carry on his work and the bloodline of King David. So it was going to seemingly be dead, it would seemingly be de decaying even, but it would bring forth new life in the Messiah, Jesus. So Paul here is specifically acknowledging Jesus as the root of Jesse, in whom the Gentiles put their hope. Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. Root of Jesse. It really focuses on the humanity of Jesus. The Messiah would have a humble human origin. Here you have a shepherd from Bethlehem, Jesse, Occupying a very humble estate in life. King Saul used the phrase son of Jesse uh, to refer to David in derogatory terms. But instead of perishing, Jesse's family would grow to bear the Messiah. Isaiah 11, 1, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. That's Jesus. See, Isaiah 11.10 is envisioning a day when God would fulfill his promise for a transformed world. Israel would experience a second exodus. Isaiah 11, 11 to 16. And so Jesus, as the shoot or the root of Jesse, inaugurates salvation that was promised in Isaiah, begins to rule over Gentiles who get saved, See, the, the rule of the root of Jesse over Gentiles involves salvation. In him will they hope. In him will they hope. This is messianic. This root 
of Jesse will provide salvation, righteousness. Peoples of the earth will live under his rule. This fulfillment of prophecy was happening right before their eyes as Paul was writing Romans. So many reasons to rejoice in gospel glory, right? God's welcome of every believer. Christ's welcome. It drives our unity. Christ's work in keeping the promises and extending mercy. Christ's worship that generates praise. We just worship Jesus for what he does. We praise his name. But then we get to verse 13. We see a picture of Christ's witnesses getting prayed for. Well, they would have a generous provision of overflowing hope from God. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. Not just have a little hope, but you would abound in hope. Super abundant, lavish, overflowing, more than is necessary, more than is needed. There's an emphasis on hope. He is the God of hope, described in Isaiah 11.10. The emphasis on hope. We, we think about hope. We, we throw hope around and we say, oh, I hope something happens and it's just wishful thinking, right? That's not biblical hope. We put our hope in something that will bring us what we think would be the greatest you know, future happiness, right? Well, what happens is the object of your hope like that becomes the object of your praise and worship. And Paul prays that believers would be filled with hope from God. Because those who hope in God, he becomes their delight and joy. You put your hope in God, he is your joy. So Paul is praying for these Roman believers, he's praying for us, Two, that we might have joy and peace. And, and for them, it was in the midst of present difficulties. For us, it's in the midst of present difficulties. Joy and peace. You know where it comes from? From God. To those who put their confidence in God, who is faithful. Harmony results. It exists between Jew and Gentile when both groups hope in the shoot of Jesse, in the root of Jesse. So the God of hope who gives hope fills us. This is not like a possibility. This is an assurance that he fills us with all joy and peace in believing. And you notice it says in believing. Believing what? Believing that there is a holy God who loves his people and that mankind is sinful None of us can say we have no sin or we deceive ourselves. But Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior who took all of our sin upon himself at the cross. It's based on fact. A sufficient sacrifice was made. We are to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you today and you haven't done that, do it now. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul is praying for believers to keep on believing. Keep on believing. And it says that you would abound in hope, that you would have overflowing, superabundant hope in lavish quantities. This is the hope that is spoken of in in Romans 5, 1 to 5. This is the hope that is spoken of in Romans 8, verses 20 to 25. This is the hope that is a settled confidence. It is not wishful, shaky thinking. It is based on fact. And it is coming from And this is awesome, the power of the Holy Spirit. The means by which God produces the hope in you and in me is the Holy Spirit. He produces hope in believers in lavish, abundant quantities, and hope is not generated by humans. The source of our hope is the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's true. It echoes Romans 8 that says that hope that is seen is not hope and that the Spirit of God helps believers in the midst of the suffering that sin brings on all creation and that Jesus is in in process and we need to be patiently waiting for this 
that he will free his people and creation from suffering. And what Paul is really praying is that, you know, this time of waiting until that happens, that it would not be a time of despondency for you and I, but it would be a time of deep, abiding trust and hope in God, who is our joy and our peace. This is just the most fitting conclusion to Romans so far. This prayer, wow. It it sums it up beautifully, I think it does. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. All joy and peace in believing. Not just a smidge, but all of it. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would have hope. May may you rejoice in gospel glory. You, plural, it's us, the church, together. And this this is why we can say that the spirit indwelt church of the living God on earth right now is living proof, present tense proof, that God exists and he's keeping his promises and the gospel is true. And he is gonna restore the world. There are so many good things you can enter into evidence here. Christ's welcome drives our unity. The welcome of Christ unilaterally initiated towards us, to the undeserving, pure grace. Jesus chooses us. He initiated good for our souls so we can welcome people unconditionally. You can look around this church and say, I'm going to welcome everyone, everyone. And you think about Christ's work, the the work of Christ, keeping his promises and and applying mercy. He didn't give us what our sins deserved. He didn't give us condemnation and judgment in hell. We were haters of God. We were his enemies. We were dead in sin. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, brought us into fellowship with himself forever. So, So we can faithfully and mercifully welcome other believers. The worship of Christ for his glorious salvation granted that generates just our, our abject praise. When we think about all nations just bowing before him, that we have been blessed strongly in Christ, that we are now to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, that we would welcome people boldly, we would welcome each other boldly, that we would worship Jesus together in, in gratefulness because he has offered us freely to give us salvation so we can, praise, we can praise God freely with people that are different than us, but where there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about Christ's witnesses. Think about the witnesses of Christ empowered by the overflowing, superabundant hope in Jesus. Jesus has welcomed you generously into his eternal inheritance. You can welcome people generously. You, you have all you need in Christ. You can be open-handed with everything you have that this world is not your home. We walk by faith, not by sight. One day we're gonna see Jesus face to face. Get that. And Christ has given us a guarantee of our eternal home by the Holy Spirit. You know what that means for you and me? I can use my earthly home as a mission base to equip believers and to, to make disciples. And if I feel weak about it or unable or stretched too thin with other things, I can, I can ask God for wisdom and clarity about what I should be spending my time towards. Give me energy to do the thing he calls me to do. I can welcome believers through the doors of this church and into the seats of this church and into groups and into homes and, and we can welcome other believers into our hearts all throughout the week we can bless the church, we can, we can display gospel glory through the world, we can bring glory to God, we can welcome as Christ has welcomed us. Did you know that we get to see and savor this all the time? We get to see and savor gospel glory. We get, we get, to, we get to see and savor Christ's glory through his welcome now in his church. Right now, we get to see these things. All these things, I I am witnessing so many things like this. Like when when we obey the word of God, we we witness gospel glory. When we pour out our life in ministry, 
we witness gospel glory. When we repent, we witness gospel glory. We, we rejoice in it. When we praise God for his goodness, we rejoice in gospel glory. When we reconcile and become friends again, when we welcome each other into sweet friendship and sweet fellowship, when we live free in Christ, we see and we rejoice in gospel glory. When we teach children the word of God in our homes and in the, the classrooms of this church, we rejoice in gospel glory. When we love the Elmo community, when we, when we use our God-given gifts to do God-enabled ministry, when we, when we do whatever we do in the name of Jesus to bless other people, when we serve food, when we clean kitchens, when we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, when we write an encouraging note, when we say an encouraging word to a brother or sister in Christ, when we look beyond judgment, when we forgive each other, when we refuse to complain, when we stop nursing our wounds and turn to help someone with their wounds, when we give what we need to help someone else in need, the list is seemingly endless. When we cook hot dogs at La Paloma Park, when we cook breakfast for, for injured veterans, when we help a, a, a struggling single mom get things to help her live and welcome a new baby, when we help someone find a car who's in need of a car, when we help and visit someone who has cancer, when we give sacrificially of whatever we've got, when we bear each other's burdens, when we get to know our neighbors, when we take an interest in each other's lives, when we, when we love Jesus, when we love each other, and when we love people who don't love Jesus, we see and savor Christ's glory through his welcome now in his church. And what happens is our joy and our peace just overflow, not just in our hearts, not just in my heart, not just in your heart, but in our collective community. We see beyond the immediate pain or the hurdle, or the difficulty, and we see God's glory in the ordinary life as Jesus is in process of making all things new. That is the abundant life that Jesus promised us. The intent of this passage is that gospel welcome would lead to gospel glory as, as Christians accepted by God accept other Christians and rejoice in gospel glory because Jesus is worthy. Amen? Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy. We praise you. You are worthy of all honor and blessing and praise for what you have done and what you are doing. Lord, we praise you. May we continue as you give us strength to rejoice in gospel glory and to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.